Podcast where teachers and students are talking history. I am your host, Winnie, joined by my co-hosts, Lafayette and Inez. Wow, here we are. The first <laughs> episode. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about famous ships and the journeys that they made and how they shaped America on this episode called That Ship Has Sailed. Mm, some... Some incredible journeys. Not always uplifting. Definitely not. Yeah, I don't think these are going to be magical journeys yeah. to a wonderland here. This is going to be a rough and rocky ship. Mm-hmm. The seas were, uh, were stormy. <laughs> uh, our first segment here we call Story Time. And in Story Time, um, we're just going to kind of recap some of uh, the most famous ships headed towards the New World, headed yeah. towards America, depending on the time period. And um, we'll, we'll go over the stories during story time. And then uh, we have a few other segments, including student speaking. Yes. So student speaking. Each episode, we invite a student or just a couple students to come and share something about themselves, their personal stories, ask some questions, answer some questions, just kind of hang out with us for a little bit. Indeed. And then we'll end the episode, uh, Winnie, with... Some okay. juicy history. So we will tell you some juicy, savory morsels of history that you may not know about. That sounds absolutely delicious. (laughs) (laughs) Should we jump into story time? We shall. Sounds good. I think uh, I'll I'll start our story time today. We'll go in chronological (laughs) order here. So uh, the, the journey that I'm bringing to the table today is... Uh, the Mayflower, one of many Mayflowers. It was a, a really popular name, apparently, but... <laughs> it's like the, it was like the Jane Smith. Yes, like the Jane Smith, or like, yeah, the... John Smith. John, John Smith, oh, there you go. So many Johns. I know, I know. <laughs> that was my next-door neighbor at my old house, was John Smith. Oh, wow. By his equally unique-named wife, Ann Smith. Wow, what a duo. <laughs> well, the Mayflower that, that we're talking about today is the one that I think all of you guys probably know and love, the pilgrims leading to the first Thanksgiving, all of that food, mm. sweet potatoes, but uh, deer, no right? deer venison, Big. eel, yep. Big, yes. <laughs> Real popular. <laughs> N- not a whole lot aboard the Mayflower, though. So uh, this journey, you know, the whole motivating force behind it is trying to practice faith freely without any sort of persecution and actually most of these guys that were aboard the Mayflower weren't in England they're in Holland they left England to go and practice their religion but um, they decide that they're going to try to go to the new world mostly because well they're still kind of being persecuted over in Holland and their kids are turning into little Dutch babies (laughs) and as much as they don't like the Church of England they still love their king so they don't want their children to be I don't know the only thing worse than being persecuted is being a tulip loving (laughs) Dutch boy haircut wearing clog windmill building I don't know that's such a stereotype I'm sorry I shouldn't do that but that's what I think of and you know what they weren't just like yeah 
let's go to the new world. Uh, before the Mayflower, there was like another group of 100 or so uh, people that left and they all died. They were like <laughs> sardines, just found dead, right? Their ship was did not reach land successfully. So uh, I think it probably weighed pretty heavily on their heart. Should we do it or should we not? Um, so they so they know there's a huge chance of dying. Yes. Do you do it? Mm. You want to get you want to get out of the Netherlands like crazy. <laughs> yeah. How bad is I the know. Netherlands? I don't know. <laughs> you know they they had some angry mobs with some rocks and things that were coming at them, and they didn't have the greatest jobs there. They were mostly working with like fabric. Ugh. Weaving, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. I don't relate to their story, though. Yeah. I don't relate to their story. I can't say. But they felt pretty darn strongly about this. You know what's interesting about them, though, is it's like if trouble comes their way, it's not because they did anything bad or that they deserve the trouble. It's just a challenge from God to see if they're like up for the next level of being a pilgrim like level like, up you survived the rocky seas like the ninja warrior of faith <laughs> yeah <laughs> how far this obstacle can you make it netherlands was round one <laughs> yeah the netherlands yeah. is like the salmon ladder atlantic yes. ocean round two <laughs> i guess that yeah, I, yeah, I, I guess the new world would be like the wall the 30 the wall, wall yeah right. they have to run yeah. sure. well it. what happened on the atlantic did anything happen on the a whole lot <laughs> happened on the Atlantic. Well, they're actually supposed to set sail with another ship, and rumor has it that that ship sprung a bunch of leaks, but it wasn't that the ship was faulty. The captain, <laughs> like, purposefully upgraded the masts, screwed oh, it boy. up yeah, so these... that the ship would leak so that he could be like, deuces, I'm not going with you. <laughs> That's going back to England. Um, across go. these ship stories, these captains are suspect. Yeah. They are mm-hmm. often... The cause yeah, of the problem. I, I think a lot so. Of problems. The captain of the Mayflower, though, had been with the ship for a long time. It was mm. pretty standard ship. Transported yeah. vinegar and wine. It was rumored to smell sort of sweet. It was mm. called a sweet ship until there were a bunch of sweaty, unbathed <laughs> pilgrims on board. Keep those nostrils clear. <laughs> but it's um, smell like Fritos and. Yeah. Oh, I don't even know. Mixed with what. the vinegar. Yeah, I know. Ugh. Well, so it takes them over two months 65 days from start to finish and they'd actually been living on the ship for a while like the back and forth to holland the problems with the other ship that was supposed to go with them the speed well so there are people that are on board supplies are already low by the time they're starting the journey and it you know they left in the fall they thought they were going to be leaving in the summer and they weren't and two months on board like scurvy is breaking out by the time they land not in virginia they're they have like limited food no water they ran out of beer which was worse you guys know you guys know why it's better to have beer right than water aboard the ship no (laughs) not 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 that it's good to consume beer or healthy but just because you know uh i guess bacteria or pathogens or whatever it might be in the water it was considered Mm. safer or more sanitary to drink beer and so when they ran out of that and then they're running out of water it's better to drink water now though because it's right Because it's clean. Because it's clean. Because it's clean. It won't kill you. Yeah, disease has really started to spread like crazy. Um, It's a good rule of thumb that whatever liquid will kill you, don't drink. Yes, yes. And yet, as we saw in Jamestown. Yeah, well, salt water has its own appeal, I guess. I know. (laughs) I love how that's a... What other option did they have, though? I I mean, 
the vinegar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I read it's going to be a new hit in the new world. A, a story about this guy. So there was a crew, and then there were a bunch of Puritans, like 100, not 100 Puritans, but uh, most of the, the passengers were Puritans, so not everybody was. But so there it was were a all rowdy these, bunch. Oh, right. oh, yeah. Well... <laughs> I guess that they called a lot of the crew members like super vulgar and there was one dude in particular a sailor that was just making fun of all of the pilgrims that were getting seasick I could like picture him laughing like oh you're such a wimp but was saying worse things and like was like I can't wait till I can throw you overboard like you're never gonna make it to land and he was the first crew member to die so don't make fun of other people that was God taking care of that there you go they had to believe right Uh, yes I picture like a big lightning bolt coming down like strengthened (laughs) their faith quite a bit um but no it wasn't an easy journey but i think that they were you know not that they were optimistic there's a lot of unrest by the time they reached the new world and they weren't in virginia and they realized they're in cape cod and they had to figure out what to do and the mayflower compact and all of that but that um really it was just kind of viewed as like challenges from god and over half of them die about Mm. half the crew dies so that's quite a challenge but did they take that as a sign? No, I don't, I don't <laughs> know. Were, I don't there, know. Was, there was no turning back. No, there, yeah. there really, really wasn't. And they were still so thankful to, to see land when they finally saw it. Even though they knew they weren't where they were supposed to be, they weren't sure what they were going to encounter with natives. It was just like fresh air and land. And I, I guess they ate a bunch of mussels, and then they all like had like reaction to shellfish and were violently <laughs> ill. But <laughs> what can you do? Oh, and the Mayflower, it took off. Like, it was, you know, I think of it as kind of an Uber, yes. right? It's just their drive. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's exactly. Just, it's just there to drop them off. Yes. It's an, Good yeah. luck in the new world. Well, they stay They <laughs> stay the for shellfish. the first, like, through a couple of the winter months before right. they actually settle. But then it's gone, and there are, like, other voyages that it takes. It's not the end of the life for that ship, and it doesn't stay there permanently. And, um, yeah, hmm. it's just chartered for for that journey. What? Yeah, and um, it's kind of a mystery, right? They think that the Mayflower is used for parts, uh, yeah. forts back in England. Yep. Or, yep. Okay. Which wasn't entirely uncommon, no? No. Yeah. Usually you can repurpose you know, a vessel for many other things. It was very hipster of them to repurpose. <laughs> yeah. So the, you know, the ship actually had like a breakdown while it was on the ocean, and one of like the major supports busted. They say it kind of like just like a twig snapping, and they used what was called like a screw jack they were going to use for building houses, and like held it together barely enough for it to to reach land. So wow, yeah, interesting. Mm-hmm. So the Mayflower kind of helps get the party started in the United States, mm-hmm. and. Uh, the ship I'm going to be talking about is kind of a downer. Uh, the, the country has been built. It's thriving. And in fact, the ship I'm going to talk about today is called the Zong. And the Zong uh, was actually in motion during a very interesting moment, uh, September, October, November of 1781, uh, which means as this whole uh, event unfolds upon the ship, uh, the revolution is they're, wind, they're getting ready for uh, Yorktown, meaning uh, it's kind of a, a really interesting contrast that this tragedy on the ocean is um, going up against the Americans winning the revolution. Um, but pretty much what we have with uh, the Zong is a slave ship. Uh, slavery is alive in the colonies um, at that moment being supported by the English government, but will eventually be supported by the American as well. Um, and the 
everything about it is legal. Slave trade is legal. Slavery in America is legal. And uh, this ship is headed from modern-day Ghana to uh, modern-day Jamaica. That That is supposed to be the route. And that was a pretty common route along what we call the Middle Passage. Yeah. Middle Passage. Yeah. Triangular trade. All part of that golden triangle. Yep. Well, they would stop. They would stop in the Caribbean and then do what they called seasoning their slaves. So you would teach them basic commands and you would oh, move them on. And yeah. then you would kind of move them on because I think if you if if a slave was seasoned and had some kind of basic skill, they would actually fetch like a higher price. Right. It's also where you like fix them up and hide any of the imperfections yeah. and all the abuse that they got on the boats. Right. But on this particular ship, uh, the captain, Luke Collingwood, who actually was sick for most of the voyage, and so responsibility doesn't really fall anywhere for what's about to happen. Luke is apparently ill and not running the ship. The second-in-command has been suspended. Um, So there's no... Which is a big part of, I think, why things fall apart. But they've overstuffed the ship. Uh, over 440 slaves are aboard. Whoa. And that's not even, like, totally uncommon to do, though, right? Right. They're trying most bang for your buck, so as many people as possible. But then you're going to inevitably run into the problems that they run into um, due to lack of leadership or planning. Uh, they apparently believe they don't have enough water to make it, that's their claim. The The crew's claim is they didn't think they had enough fresh water with the amount of people aboard to make it to land. And so their solution is to throw over uh, 130 slaves into the ocean. This is for two reasons. If you believe the crew, it's to save the rest of the crew so there's enough water, drinkable water. If you are to see things from a different perspective, uh, they're, trying to, they're trying to collect insurance money because what happens uh, with slave ships is if the slave dies naturally, you don't get to collect any money for them. Or even if you make it to land and the slave dies of natural causes once on the land, you still, of course, then lose that cost. So 133 slaves are thrown overboard, and the reasoning then, of course, not natural cause, but that they had to rid themselves of these slaves in order to save the rest of the crew, hence pay us money even for the lost slaves. Yeah. Um, I think it's worth mentioning, too, that Slavery is like a lucrative business, so it's a huge money maker. So you're not going to throw, you're essentially throwing over money. Right. So right. they're going to want to collect that money somehow back. Yes. But, like you said, if it's proven that they, so the big, I guess the big question is, who do you believe? Right. Well, the insurance mm-hmm. company certainly didn't believe them. They thought there was enough evidence. Apparently, mm-hmm. when they re- arrived in Jamaica, the amount of water on board would have still been enough for the crew plus all the people killed yeah so uh the jamaica the first round they had several trials the first round sided in favor of the crew saying pay the crew um you know whatever they say we believe and the insurance companies uh as is to happen um challenge that they believe they they're being cheated out of their money and so the second trial will be held in england and uh that trial will actually be in favor of the insurance company saying that this this can't be the standard that you just start throwing over slaves. And in yeah. fact, this whole thing is a huge spark for the abolition movement. Um, you, you got people like Granville Sharp par- popping up saying, you know, this is the worst of mankind that we could kill humans uh, in order for money. Well, it could be like 
Oh, not enough water. Let's just toss these people when, overboard. When people are dying of natural causes or diseases or something as a result of your own lack of planning. I mean, it's hard for me to even wrap my head around the fact that it would be okay to do that to save the crew. Because right. we think of just a human as a human and everybody needs water and you can't just, you know, take these people, call them property and throw them overboard. But if, I mean... If the case had been decided the other way, against the insurance company and for the crew, what a precedent that would have set for all oh, other slave ships. Exactly like, okay, well, you know, we're losing a lot of people. so. And I think with so many really captains awesome. being what you call like tight packers, you have like a choice as a slave boat captain. Do you pack, for, I think it's like for every two tons of your ship, mm-hmm. you can have X amount of slaves. So do you pack... The minimum, knowing that the less people you have, the less chance you'll have disease, the less chance you'll run out of supplies. But then that's less people that you have to sell and less money you're going to make. Or do you pack as many as you can in, knowing you're going to lose like half, but you still started with a lot versus... I mean, it's crazy to even think of it like that, though. But we're sitting here talking about people, and for them it's just like, ah, this is something... an economic question. Yeah, we're talking men, women, children. Yeah. I, th- I believe the first batch thrown over was just primarily women and children. Oh and then because they don't make as much money on the yeah. auction block. People right. want, when people buy slaves, they want to buy males because they believe males to be stronger. And you have to remember, they're getting them for farming work. So you need someone who's physically can endure a lot of that, which yeah. is interesting because in Africa, it was the women that would actually farm mm. and not the men. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, it is noted that um, several slaves jumped over simply in defiance of what was occurring, so about 10 slaves willingly jumped mm-hmm. to their death, uh, and several other slaves started pleading with them that rather than just throwing people overboard, uh, I'll just stop the food ration and see what happens, you know, almost saying we'd prefer that form of death rather yeah. than, um, but the crew was you know, obviously not compliant with the slaves. So, it sounds, you know, it's a pretty awful story, but it's a really important one as far as bringing awareness. It became a national, it became a global story, both in England and in the colonies, uh, and it really started dividing people into those groups that will lead to eventually, luckily, the downfall of slavery with abolition groups saying this can't yeah. exist. That was a question that I had for you, and I don't know if you have the answer, but how much would sort of like the average um, colonist, the average citizen in the colonies be aware of what was going on. I mean, we have to That's take into consideration question. like literacy rates was shared in the press. Is there right. evidence of that and that, that it was in Right. I think I think people within the business mm-hmm. of slavery uh, had a pretty good idea of pretty good idea of the middle passage triangular trade what was happening. Um, evidence would support that a lot of people in the north uh, or New England colonies, middle colonies were unless you were part of the port and trading were oblivious to a lot of what was occurring in the South. I think some of that, too, is they didn't depend on slave labor in the North. You have, like, rocky, crappy soil. You have kind of cold. You do. So there's not as much. Farming's not as big. You have colder weather, shorter growing seasons. So they don't have, I guess, the demand for slaves as much. So they're not as familiar with it and the ins and outs of it. But I think it's important, you guys are touching on this, that when you have cases like this, whether you win or lose these cases, it's important to bring them to the forefront because people, it, it does bring awareness to it. It makes people curious. It makes people a little more outraged about things. When you put a face or you put a name or a number on right. like an actual thing, I think it's one thing to just hear about it, but when you see, like... And I think mm-hmm. the trial at the time, mm-hmm. like, 
you know, there are people who are being quoted in the trial. So the attorneys, there's a really famous quote of the one guy being baffled that anybody could see the slaves as anything but property. He has this quote of saying it's it's the equivalent of throwing wood over the ship. Uh-huh. Uh, and so then I think that really, sh- you know, because this became a famous case, people were reading these quotes, and that would really help them. Where's kind of the cement. lightning bolt on that one? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so not in this case, that ship is a representative of a transformative time, I believe, in American history of this, now that we're going to have to have this debate as to whether we can t- continue with this. And I think through your ship, we, we see a little more on that. Yes, so my ship is La Amistad, and it... <laughs> Do you know what that means? It means friendship, which is ironic oh. because mm. it is a slave ship. Because nothing says friendship like forced kidnap. <laughs> well, uh, I, I forgot to mention, but Zong originally mm-hmm. was, uh, the title of the ship was originally Zorg, I believe, and that means care. Also uh, like a sci-fi novel or something. <laughs> <laughs> Zorg. Me, Zorg. So we have care and friendship. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, there's a, um, if you ever get a chance to go to Cincinnati, there's the... Underground Railroad Museum, and they have an, an area. It looks like you're underwater, and it has all the names of all the ships mm. and how many people each wow. lost, whether it be thrown overboard or just died in the process. And it's they translate some of them, and they all are like these like polite, mythical, nice names. And it's like, wish we could just saw, like call this ship like evil, you know, yeah. like <laughs> destruction. Rename them. <laughs> right. Go back. You don't get to keep that. Name. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Like no, I'm taking your Amistad back. We're done. But um, Amistad, the case comes out after kind of an integral year in the slave trade. The year is going to be 1808, and it actually gets outlawed, um, the international slave trade, which means that you can no longer trade with other countries, meaning you can't go to Africa and kidnap people and bring them into your colony. You have to trade with what you have. So you have to trade with what's already in your colonies or your countries. You can't um, import people from other places. So it goes into effect in 1808 and this case that I'm going to tell you about happens in 1839-1840 and what it was is there were about 53 slaves taken from what would be now Sierra Leone and they are transported from there to Cuba because like we said a lot of places they'll stop um, from there and in Cuba they are baptized kind of and this is a way for them to like kind of hide that they're taking slaves because what they're doing is illegal so they have to act like these weren't you know, people taken from Africa, this is like Jose so-and-so. And And they would just give them like these Spanish-sounding names and they had a priest that would be like sitting outside the boat, like, you know, making the sign of the cross, like blessing them with the water, like, all right, you guys, so that if anybody questions, what is, they they have like the ledgers where they've changed the name, so it would look like they were born on a Cuban plantation. Mm -hmm. So they're not technically breaking the law, they're not taking them from Africa, they're just picking them up from Cuba, which is already, you know, a Spanish colony. So they get bought by these two guys who are, I think it's Montez and Ruiz, and they are plantation owners, and they're going to be taking them back to Spain. And in the process, the slaves actually revolt, which I think that's the biggest question we get every year oh when we teach gosh, slavery is like, why did they just fight on the ships? And I said, well, I think, and I think rebellions usually take place when they can still kind of see land and it, there's some sort right. of hope. It doesn't really yeah. happen on the open there's you know, no ocean. Way out of right, because what are you going to do? So this do? is what happens. So it's led by this guy, Joseph Sinke, which is not his real name. That was his Christianized, like, Through the baptism. Real, like, super fast baptism. But um, Sinke is going to be, like, the de facto leader of this rebellion. And what they do is they, they he gets out of his shackles and they, they kind of plan it out and he 
he and a couple people kill some of the crew members, kill the captain, and they get Montez and Ruiz, and they're like, you need to, you know, and obviously communication breakdown, but they're trying to get them to sail them back to Africa or back to their homeland. And what happens is that during the night, one of the guys, whether it's Montez or Ruiz, like kind of mysteries it, and they end up, thank goodness, in the north. They end up outside of... Um, I think it's Long Island. So they end up outside of Long Island, and this other ship that's supposed to be patrolling the waters, like an American ship, the Washington, comes upon this, like, beat-up, crazy-looking ship, and they're like, whoa, what's happening there? You know, and they they see the Spanish name, so they're going to question it. And they find, you know, the people inside, and the, the crew members are trying to explain that, you know, the, these slaves got loose, or they killed these people, or whatever. So they end up putting all of them in jail. And they let the two guys go, but they keep the slaves there for murder. So now the question is, do you charge these people with murder? And there's a few things that pop up. And the case sparks the attention. It's in Connecticut. It sparks the attention of Lewis Tappan. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right, but he, <laughs> Mr. Tappan. And he's an, uh, an abolitionist, and there's a lot of abolitionists up north. And it's, um, he kind of takes up this case, and the case is argued by a few people, but the head kind of um, proctor or lawyer is Roger Baldwin. So Mr. Baldwin has to prove a few things. Number one, he has to prove that these people are actually slaves taken from Africa. And if he can prove that, then you can't really charge them with murder because they were taken illegally. The The other thing he has to prove is that, and he kind of, this is part of his argument, like if they are in fact slaves, even if they were born in Cuba or not, could you really charge a slave to, of killing anybody because technically there's Pretty property right like this chair can't kill me right now I can't yeah. charge it with murder so if slaves are considered property and just objects you can't charge an object with murder so either way you slice it they have to go so um, they actually have a translator come in who's able to translate with Sinke and he explains what actually you know about the rebellion and how they were treated and he's able to explain that you know how they had gone to another place first and then from there because there's three people who are trying to claim the, the slaves, there's the people who found them, like the U.S. Washington, the two guys are like, you know, finders, keepers, and they want to be compensated. Mm. Well, they find the ship, and they're like, you know, it took this a really... This is like everybody trying to, like, profit or win exactly. off of and, and something that was supposed to be illegal. Like, right. Well, just, yeah. well they, go, they go in there, and they're like, well, we, it took, it, it was a lot of effort, and it was dangerous to try to bring this ship in, and, you know, we should get compensated for it. Then you have Ruiz and Montez, who are like... You know, I want to be compensated for this. I want my slaves because they want to make you know money off these guys. And then you have you know the abolitionists who are like, you can't charge anybody with anybody. You got to let them go. They were taken illegally. So long story short, they go through the whole trial process, and they actually it ends up going all the way through to the Supreme Court, where the case is then argued by none other than John Quincy Adams. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> who I think that's the first time we ever get a whoop whoop. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Big Quincy Adams fan. The other Adams. Um, yeah, I think he kind of doesn't get enough love for this, but at this point he's kind of like a curmudgeon-y old, you know, yeah. Congress member, and he argues the case, and it's eight and a half hours he makes his Ooh. case. So those, you know, you think I talk a lot. My God, eight and a half hours. <laughs> that is like an entire work day yeah. of impassionately arguing. They have time restrictions now. I believe your argument can't, like, exceed 40, 45 minutes. Ooh, and it probably in parentheses because of mm-hmm. yeah. this, is the <laughs> JQA. this is the Quincy Adams clause. But he, he is successful in the court, the Supreme Court, which is the final say in any sort of appeal. So it's a done deal. They say these guys were taken illegally. They are not born in Cuba. They were taken from Africa, and they should be returned. And it doesn't matter if they killed, 
you know, the crew members, because anybody who's taken illegally, it's like self-defense, you know, like anybody who's taken illegally ends up, um, anybody who's taken illegally has the right to fight against it. So they allow these guys to go back home. Now, at this point, there's only about 35 of them left because they either died in jail mm -hmm. or on the journey back home. So when Cinque gets back home, um, nobody knows what happened to his family because at that point there were so many wars going on. Because you have to understand, like, the people, like, the groups in Africa would make, that would capture other people, would make so much money off of it. So you had all these wars going on between fellow countrymen trying to capture one another to get more guns and make more money off of trading their you know, fellow countrymen, so. What's our time frame from, like, roughly start to, to Start to end? Here? Yeah, it'd be 18, well, they get captured in 1839 in February in, from Sierra Leone. I want to say the case is wrapped up by 1840, so. That's pretty okay. fast. It's yeah. a, yeah, and it does get, like, like you're saying, it gets a ton of attention, especially with having a former president argue your case, right. and it's, like, one of the few that makes it all the way to the Supreme Court, so it's kind of like, the zong of the 1840s in this in the sense that it's, yeah. it really brings a lot of awareness and I think having and you can go online and get them they have the actual like transcriptions of what Cinque said like the different testimonies and I think for people to hear straight from my person's mouth what it was like to go through that middle passage is harrowing I mean he talks in grave detail about the abuses that he and other you know shipmates and he talks about people committing suicide on there rather than being a slave. And it, it's very, very intense. But this is one of those cases that kind of blows the lid off of the evils of slavery. And it's going to be, again, setting precedent for those abolitionists to start to argue cases. Even if you, like, lose, at least you got the attention out there. So that's the story of friendship <laughs> on the Amistad. Yeah. And all, all three kind of crucial moments, yeah, defining yeah. moments in, you know, in American history, and there's so many more. Uh, do you have any favorite ships that we didn't get to talk about? I, I like I, the Lawrence. I think of the Lawrence on Lake Erie. Don't get the, the, the <laughs> ship, right? Just just imagining a ship on Lake Erie fighting is kind of uh, a very uh, exciting. Yeah, it's not the weirdest thing I've probably ever seen in Lake Erie, but <laughs> I think one, one thing that's interesting about all of our ships, even though it's just, I think the perseverance, even with the Lawrence, the perseverance of how do people in these hopeless situations still have enough moxie to push through and try? Yeah. Like whether you're a slave, whether you're, you know, a pilgrim going on this unknown journey, in each case, you're taking such a gamble to go on this ship and you're, whether it be by force or by yeah. a choice, how do you when you're up against such odds, how do you still have the will to like push forward? You know, like especially when you're in such a hopeless, dire situation, how do you? I don't know. Yeah. Thoughts. Uh, Thoughts. No, I mean it's very a vulnerable thing. I mean, mm -hmm. obviously with the pilgrims, they had the most say over their circumstance. Where in Indeed. our in our in our cases, you have either employees who are getting paid, in some cases very handsomely, mm -hmm. or or people who had no say at all. So it. It's impossible to, we're lucky to live in a time where it's impossible to really put yourself in the shoes of these people. But we are indeed. I mean, to think about the challenges faced is, it, it is an impossibility. So I think I think of it like that. Like whatever struggle I face really pales in comparison. Mm. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. 
um, we wanted to talk to someone, right? Mm-hmm. About uh, so you mentioned a little bit. So what, what's this next part we're about to hear? So this is student speaking, and uh, we have a student joining us today, um, student L, and she's going to tell you a little bit about her own journey to the United States of America. She was not born here, and, um, mm-hmm. and she you know, hasn't been here for very long. No, either, which she is has amazing. not, and she'll tell us about that. But you know, her journey is unique too, and, and can't wait to hear from her. Student speaking. Welcome to Student Speaking, and the student with us today is Elle. Thanks for being here. Hi, thank you. <laughs> so our episode for this cast was about ships and journeys to the United States, and you've recently moved here. So I just kind of, we wanted to invite you on to share about your experience. So tell us where you've been and, and uh, what brings you here. Um, I'm from the Philippines, and... Um, I was petitioned by my aunt 24 years ago, and um, we moved here because my parents think it, it has more opportunities for our lives, and I think they just grabbed that opportunity for, I don't know, we, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what, what was the feeling when you found out, how old were you when you moved? Um, when we move here, mm-hmm. um, um, we moved here like six months ago. Okay. Whoa. What, what was your feeling when you found out you were moving? Um, it's okay. Um, <laughs> you could be um, honest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's kind of hard because I'm not used to this country, especially the cold weather, because mm. yeah. it's very hot in the Philippines. Yeah. And it's kind of hard to like adjust from a different environment, especially this like language barrier thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think you're doing I didn't say I would have never known. Amazing, amazing, amazing job though, but I imagine that's really tough. Mm-hmm. Um, so what would you say was the hardest thing besides weather and culture? Like what was the toughest thing that you had to do to prepare yourself? Um, it's the weather and um, just the environment like the people around me because like everyone like I'm different from everyone else and yeah it's kind of hard. Have you found anybody that like you relate to or that uh, anybody else that has immigrated from the Philippines that your family knows that you've been able to connect with since moving here? Mm -hmm. My cousins like yeah we Three of us, the three families, we moved from the Philippines to here, and we arrived like just six months ago. Okay. What was that like actual journey like, like preparing for travel yeah, and moving your belongings and traveling with other people? Um, we have like so much luggage, but like I don't know, it's it's hard like going to the plane and sitting there for like 14 hours or so. Oh, gosh. oh my yeah. god. Yeah, it's it's uncomfortable. <laughs> Beside, besides the weather, what was your first major impression of the United States? What was something that struck you about um, the United States? The people. Like, they're nicer than, like, that I expected. Mm. <laughs> That's so nice to hear. Yeah. Usually it's like, wow. Whoa. Such a letdown. <laughs> That's, good. That's good. Um does the United States 
sort of live up to or seem like whatever you thought it was going to be like before you moved here, or is it different from what you thought? Um, it's the same for what I thought. Like, the weather and the people and the language, it's pretty the same. Now, do you plan to stay in America mm, after not, school, or are you going to travel the world some more? I'm not sure, because I think I'm going back for college, but I'm not sure yet if I'm going to go back to the Philippines. Well, thank you for talking to us today. Thank you for having me. We're so glad you're here. <laughs> thank you. Okay, so we are back. And for our next segment, we're going to be talking about some juicy history, some little nuggets that you may not know. They have quite a bit of juice to them. So this first one is going to be, actually, it kind of falls between, I guess, like somewhere between before Amistad, but maybe around the time of Zong. There was a song that everyone knows, and unfortunately, you usually hear it at like funerals. There's, like, every bagpipe player and their mother yeah. loves to play it. I think even, like, Destiny's Child has done, like, a beautiful rendition. <laughs> yeah. Like, everybody brings, brings a tear to everybody. It is. And it is, like, one of those songs, like, you go to sing it, and it is, like... like yeah, didn't uh, President Obama sing it yeah. um, after a shooting, I believe? And that became, yes. like, a real big deal. A, yes. A, a, I don't believe a president has ever just sung for an audience. Yeah. So the song that we're talking about is Amazing Grace. And even if you are old or young, everyone knows this song. If you don't, you should Google it. But if you, like I said, most people have heard of it. And what very few people know is that Amazing Grace was actually written by a guy who was on a slave ship. So this guy, John Newton, he's English, and he is a participant in the slave trade during the 1700s. And he ends up kind of having like this harrowing experience on this boat. These they're taking slavery, you know, like slaves back and forth, and it's right off the coast of Ireland. There's this huge storm on his ship, and things are springing leaks. It, and it, it, the ship's about to go down, <laughs> and he's having one of those moments. I think as we all do, where you're just like, dear God, or you make like your bargains, like please, if you get me through this, I promise I'll never do this, this, and this again. So he's kind of like having one of those moments like god if you get me through this like i promise and he has miraculously like the boat doesn't sink and he at that moment kind of has like this conversion now there's a movie about it that makes it look like he you know the next day is super anti-slavery and he's not he still you know goes on a couple more journeys and he actually will invest in it even after when he's not working on the boats anymore but as he gets older he starts to really kind of change his view and as he gets more and more involved in his church as I think he gets it's like an Anglican priest at this point. So he's writing hymns and he writes Amazing Grace about this moment where he kind of had this aha moment of what I'm doing is kind of wrong and I, he he actually like ends up in his later years apologizing for his participation in, in the slave trade and will work with this other guy, this English guy, William Wilberforce, who is like the... I mean, he puts the force in Wilberforce as far as getting the... It's a very cool name. Yeah, like, you really have to live up to that. So um, he ends up helping. He's one of the kind of, like, the leading people that helps convince England to get rid of the international slave trade, So, which goes into effect in 1808. So after, shortly after in 1807, when the law passes banning, you know, the slave trade, the international slave trade, right afterwards, Newton dies. So, like, at the mm. end of his days which is kind of ironic if you listen to the last few <laughs> lines of his song, like at the end of his days, he really did try to make amends for what he did, not to downplay his participation say, in it. Do you, yeah. do, you, do you forgive Newton? Or like, do you take, not forgive, but like, do you feel like, oh, okay, you know. I mean, no. 
And here's why. I, I, first of all, it's not my place to forgive. On one hand, it's like, yeah, I, I think it's noble of you to, to realize and have like that Scrooge moment where you realize that you've squandered the last years of your life being kind of, I, I think it's participation in things. I think there's so many things and we can all relate to this where you let things slide or you kind of are like a silent participant. Like, mm-hmm. I know, you know, how many times you argue things like, oh, but you know, I have to because I need the money or I need this. And it's like, you could have stood up and been like, I'm not, like, there's plenty of other jobs. Hello. So you could have done that. But on the same note, at least if you're going to go out, I think it's good that you go out on a noble note. At least you, you died trying. Yeah. yeah. So I think, so it, acknowledged. I think it's at least commendable that you did something about it. There's a lot of people that feel guilt about it but don't do anything. I think guilt without motion is useless. But if it motivates you to do things... Good for, I don't know, would you forgive him? No, I like like is? what you say, it's not my place to forgive. But we've asked our students this question, mm-hmm. like, can you celebrate the good things that someone has done yes. and, in light of the, the negative things that they've done? And, you know, this is maybe not the best example for that, but, yeah. yeah. It always just strikes me, though, when you hear Amazing Grace played to know the background the of it. It's kind of like, ugh, it's shaky. It puts yeah. kind of a new spin on it. And now if you go and look back at the lyrics... He's, he's literally just narrating his experience. Now, it didn't get turned into a song until later on. Kind of the uh, star-spangled effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was, I don't know if it was just another, like a chant um, another, before. Another poem on a ship. Yeah, poem on a ship. That right. could be another episode, poems Fra- on ships. <laughs> <laughs> That's well, the companion Fra- piece. You got Francis Scott Key, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. He's on the um, so HMS elated to, to see oh. the flag. I have a juicy piece of history about Francis Scott Key's, I believe it's his grandson in a future episode. Oh. We'll get into a get into a little bit of a shootout with somebody over his liaisons. <laughs> You're drawing mm-hmm. them in for future episodes. I am episodes. reeling you in for <laughs> for future episodes. But yes, he his son has a little bit of a scandal behind him. Or not his son, his grandson. Huh. I, I eagerly await <laughs> Can't wait to hear more. I know. That's that's like a, a pregnant pause of juice. Until next time. <laughs> okay, so for, for next time, before we wrap this up, just since we're since we're teasing mm-hmm. future stuff, uh, what, what are we talking about next time? Well, I think the next time we meet, we're going to be talking about right-hand men yeah. and women. So that's going to be like your wing, your wingman. Your, that's right. Your... The person you the one romance. the guy that gets stuff done right. There's always or the Gail. or Gail. Sorry, I know <laughs> behind oh, behind every great leader, there's yeah. usually someone in the wings that kind of keeps him together. So we're going to be exploring a couple different people and who their right hand men or women were that mm-hmm. kind of helped them be the leaders that they were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So until next time, this is Podcast. 